0: This is Democracy on the Move. (music) Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, December 4, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Tim Gibbons, the communications director for the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, stops by to talk about a crisis in the heartland. It's a very real crisis that puts our food supply at risk. I don't mean to sound alarmist about it, but this is real, folks. We need to pay attention to what's taking place in the farmlands across the nation, including right here where I live in Missouri. But first, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that, hey, you know, money injects corruption into our government. As an example, the total cost of the 2022 state and federal midterm elections this year exceeded $16.7 billion. This is according to OpenSecrets.org. And hey, you know, all that money, it comes with strings attached, right? And, you know, if you're as concerned about it as I am, then check out Move to Amend. Move to Amend is an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. To put it simply, the proposed amendment states that corporations are not people. In other words, money does not equal free speech. It's a bold concept that's designed to get the influence of money out of our elections. For more information, you can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. Tim Gibbons joins us now to talk about a crisis in the heartland. Tim is the communication director for the Missouri Rural Crisis Center. Well, what is the Missouri Rural Crisis Center? Well, let's start with the motivation. Agriculture in this country is made up of hundreds of thousands of family farms, yet the dark reality is that government policies are generally written by and for a few corporate ag businesses. It's like the industry is taking over the heartland and leaving the family farm behind. And here's how it affects you. One of the most important environmental, economic, and social issues confronting agricultural communities is the livestock industry. At issue here is whether livestock will be dispersed across the countryside on a variety of farms typified by local family ownership or produced in large confinement facilities that cluster the animals in an unhealthy environment, unhealthy not only for the animals themselves but for the surrounding communities. Now I'm talking about CAFOs here. These are the concentrated animal feeding operations. You've heard me rail about these things in the past podcasts. They pollute our groundwater, poison the streams, kill off fish, and put a foul stench in the air. And here's the thing. If you're in Missouri, there's very little you can do if a CAFO decides to set up shop down the road. Thanks to legislation passed back in 2019 here in Missouri, your county health department is virtually powerless to regulate these facilities with guidelines any more strict than than what was set by the legislators sitting comfortably in their desks at our capital city about 200 miles away. The bottom line here is that the future of large parts of America's rural environment is threatened. This includes the health and prosperity of rural communities, economic opportunity for farm and rural families, and far-reaching questions about, hey, where do we get our food? And how safe is it to eat an animal that's been raised in a clustered environment where disease can run rampant among closely packed neighbors? And will the standards of, and price of our food drop to the point where farmers who can no longer afford to stay in business abandon their farms altogether? And ultimately, what effects does this have on our democracy? Tim Gibbons from MRCC, that's the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, is here to walk us through it all. So, Tim, welcome to Democracy on the Move, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Hey, thank you for having me, Dan. I appreciate it.
0: So tell us, before we get started here, tell us a little bit about uh, the MRCC, the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, what it does, where it came from, and what its objectives are.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, Missouri Rural Crisis Center is a statewide farm and rural membership organization here in Missouri, uh, we started in 1985 um, ad hoc out of the farm crisis of the 80s. Farmers were organizing to stay on the farm during a very difficult economic time, um, not only on the ground organizing to stop foreclosures and auctions on the courthouse steps and around uh, family farms themselves, um, but also something that we know um, and that we're still working on is is policy, the, the policies that got us um, where we were and where we are. Um, and we know the policies to get us out. Um, Back in the 80s, um, one of the policies that we organized for was the 1987 Agriculture Credit Act, which allowed family farmers to refinance, Um, you know, tens of if not hundreds of thousands of family farmers are still on the land today because of that important organizing and that understanding that policy is is, um, a a huge part of, of farm economies and our rural economies and our food system in general. And right now uh, we have challenges, obviously, relative to um, the farm economy and our food system in general, Um, but we also see opportunities and um, solutions um, to get us out of where we are right now and to make a more decentralized, more democratically controlled food system that's based upon farmers and consumers, um, not based upon um, the elephant in the room, which is what we'll get into, I'm sure, further in this conversation.
0: Okay, good. And and that's a very good 30,000-foot view. And in the introduction, I laid out a fairly bleak picture of what's happening in our rural heartland, particularly among livestock farmers. Uh, do you think I was being too harsh in projecting a future where industry takes over and CAFOs become a way of life and the family farm all but disappears?
1: I, I think it depends how you look at it, Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that was too harsh. I mean, you know... W- w- We have an example of what happens when just a few corporations um, industrialize, vertically integrate, um, and take over a marketplace. And that is the history of the hog industry um, here in Missouri and um, in in our country as a whole. Um, In in 1985, Missouri had 23,000 hog producers in our state, major economic drivers um, in our local communities and in our state as a whole, Um, but in the 90s, uh, corporations use taxpayer dollars. They use our land grant uni- land grant universities and the the mouthpieces that speak for corporate agriculture, um, and created the policies and lack of policies um, so that they could industrialize and take over the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, as of the 2017 census, we have 2,600 hog producers in Missouri. So that's 23,000 in 1985 and 2,600 now. Um, that's almost 90% of Missouri hog producers put out of business over 20,000. That's a lot. Um, but, but the, the, the Mm. impacts of those 20,000 producers getting pushed out of the hog industry are go beyond just those 20,000 hog operations themselves. Um, there were major economic drivers on our rural main streets. Um, you know, local packing plants, local feed dealers, local implement dealers, Um, Those were also negatively impacted by the corporate takeover of the hog industry and the huge extraction of wealth that that came um, from the corporate takeover of the hog industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then now we've got, you know, what do we have today? We've got two foreign corporations, um, Smithfield and based in China and JBS based in Brazil, controlling 50% of the U.S. pork industry. Uh, the majority of people that we talk to out here, doesn't matter what political side they're on, they think that is not right. No. Um, so not only that huge concentration of 50 percent of our pork is controlled by two corporations, but the fact that they're controlled by two foreign corporations um, makes it even worse. And and right now we're really pushing on the Biden administration um, and th- through the 2023 Farm Bill, which is coming up next year, um, to really address what is really going on out here. And a lot of what's going on out here is from, is due to farm bills that are written for by corporations themselves at the expense of farmers, at the expense of consumers, the expense of our food system, our national security, our environment, our climate, at the expense of everything we value. Mm-hmm. And our argument is, you know, that the purpose of good government is to create competition in marketplaces um, and to ensure that that you know people get paid a good wage and, and people that are buying stuff pay a good price. Um, but right now we're seeing those middle corporations extracting huge amounts of wealth at the expense of both farmers, consumers and our communities. Does this
0: present a danger to the food supply itself? Because you have, like you say, 50% of our hog farm, or 50% of the hogs produced in the U.S. now are produced by, you know, these major corporations, Smithfield and JBS. Um, I mean, I can't help thinking myself here, it's like, it's not like these corporations are taking over family farms and just keeping the family farms intact. They're consolidating everything into these CAFOs. And uh, I mean, doesn't that, does that threaten the food supply? I, I'm thinking about like diseases and things like that, that, that run rampant or could potentially run rampant in these environments?
1: More than we can even talk about right now, Dan. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the, you know, the the, the COVID pandemic um, showed what happens when a centralized control of our food system and a challenge like, like COVID happens and there's huge bottlenecks um, and they don't care about us. You know, they don't care about farmers. They don't care about consumers. They don't care about our communities. They just care about the bottom line for themselves. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, but also it's, you know, an example that we're using today um, is challenges like um, like the pandemic, but also, you know, the war, Russia's war on Ukraine mm-hmm. um, and, and other supply chain issues that are going on and input cost issues. That are global issues are going uh, that are going on. There are major um, challenges to our food supply. Yeah. And the the least centralized our food supply is, the the more people uh, within that food supply uh, care about each other. Um, and so we have to ensure that that this centralized controlled food system um, is accountable. And right now we know it's not accountable. Um, so you know the policies we're fighting for are fighting against those types. So so that when those challenges do happen in the future, and they will, um, that we have you know security within both our food system and our national security. And you know the, the system we have right now is the opposite of that.
0: Yeah, and, and we've been framing this whole argument based mostly on livestock and focusing particularly on, on hogs as as a uh, as an example, but. What about grain farmers? I mean, does how does big ag affect grain farming?
1: Well, we should also talk about cattle production too, and we'll get into that because okay. we do have a lot of cattle uh, operations in our state, and a lot of our members uh, raise cattle, mostly cow-calf operations. But, you know, grain is a similar issue. Um, three corporations control the vast majority of the grain and chemical markets. Um, two of those corporations are also foreign corporations, um, ChemChina. Um, and Syngenta, they, they merged, and um, Monsanto and Bayer as a German corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and farmers are are having a hard time making ends meet, not only because of issues affecting their operations from, from climate change, but also input costs um, are, are going up rampantly. Um, you know, our members, want to get paid for their grain from the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these the, the 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 beneficiaries of our current grain system, which our system and the policies support overproduction and low prices. Um, and then being made whole by you know government subsidies and and government sponsored insurance programs. Mm-hmm. The beneficiaries of this below cost of production grain um, are processors and you know and meat processors they're getting below cost of production commodities for their operations uh the the system is set up very intentionally and and we hear you know some people say and i've even said it you know that the system is broken but you know some smart people have said to me tim the system's not broken the system's working exactly like they have it set up to work yeah Um, it's just broken for the vast majority of farmers out here so, you know, what's happening to our uh, independent livestock producers um, are, is also happening to our independent grain producers. And, and this, the one of the big issues that, that we talk about a lot is like, we need more farmers on the land. We need, you know, not absentee control of our land. We need people on the land working the land. Right. And from from grain production to livestock production to vegetable production on down the road. And, and those are really important questions, not only for our economy, But those are uh, really important questions for our fight for democracy. Um, Louis Brandis, a former Supreme Court justice in the 40s, said we can have wealth concentrated into the hands of a few, or we can have democracy, but we can't have both. I I, I get rid of that word wealth. What he said is true, but sometimes I just cross off that word wealth and put land. Mm -hmm. We can have land concentrated in the hands of a few, or we can have democracy, but we can't have both. So in order to... To uh, strengthen our fight for representative democracy, good government that is representative of of people and voters and taxpayers, um, we need you know our land and, and the ownership of our land to be spread out out here, um, spread out on for to independent family farmers and local landowners that that own the land, care about the land, care about their neighbors, care about their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are these are big big issues, and we're fighting like hell to make the policies make that possible.
0: Well, you hit upon something, and I'm I'm just going to play devil's advocate here as well. I mean, isn't this really capitalism in action? I mean, isn't this the way free markets are supposed to operate? You 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 increase uh, efficiencies, you increase volume if possible. I mean, this is this is what drives big industry, right? And so, big industry is now, you know, uh, penetrating into the ag business. Uh, Isn't this a natural outcome, or or is there something? Is there an advantage then to uh, to not have a big industry uh, dominating through the agriculture industry. And and again, I'm just playing devil's advocate, but I'm just very interested in hearing what your answer is on that.
1: Well, my answer is going to be a little heady, Dan. Mm -hmm. Um, The the father of free market capitalism, Adam Smith, you know, writer of the wealth of nations. Mm -hmm. um, He said that monopolies can't exist within capitalism. It's no longer capitalism when monopolies exist. Right. Um, therefore, and, and one of his arguments is the invisible hand. You know, The invisible hand of government, one of its main jobs is to ensure that capitalism is working, that competition is real, um, that we all have a fair shakeout here. Um, and and, and that's, that's what capitalism is. Um, when capitalism is unregulated and, and uh, antitrust laws aren't enforced, both the, the, the policy's not there and the political will, isn't there to enforce antitrust laws to ensure that um, monopolies don't exist and they can't use their market power to not only control prices to make their bottom lines better, but also to control our government? Um, you know that's not what capitalism is. Capitalism is competition. Capitalism is innovation. Capitalism is is people out here getting a fair shake. It's also the American dream. Yeah. Um, so so no no capitalism is not um, monopolization, um, unregulated capitalism goes that way. And that's the main purpose of, 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 government is to, is one of the main purposes of government is to ensure that there's competition in markets. And, you know, we hear from the corporate narrative, um, who say they hate big government, but they love big government. They just want people to think that big government is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our argument is, if you have government and antitrust laws enforced, and somebody and a referee in the marketplace ensuring that there's competition, then you actually need less government because uh, because wealth is more distributed among farmers and consumers and communities, and and you know you have less poverty, you have more decentralized control of our wealth, decentralized control of our land. So actually, if if, if government does one of the things it's supposed to do, which is enforce antitrust laws, we'll actually need less government um because there's competition out here and people are getting a fair shake, shake and people are working hard and and uh, seeing the fruits of their label, labor come to fruition.
0: There there's been this big push since since the 80s since Reagan. Regulation has has always been kind of a bad word, hasn't it? I mean, the whole thing is that let's deregulate, let's deregulate. And and every time we deregulate, we run into trouble. We run into trouble exactly like this. Uh, you said that uh, capitalism, unregulated capitalism, uh, is not, well, I, I don't remember exactly what the words were, but something about Adam Smith saying you can't have uh, a monopoly with democracy, but unregulated capitalism turns into monopoly because that's what they try to do. They try to eke out their competition, they try to monopolize the market, and therefore they can, they can, uh, they have a captive market at that point. So, uh, and the thing about capitalism, at least what I've, come to realize is that it can exist without democracy. Uh, it, but it's no longer democracy then right? It becomes an oligarchy or something like that. So um, okay, so I'm with you on well, that one. Yeah. Oh, go ahead.
1: That, yeah, and you know, you brought up one important word and that word is Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his changing the the definition of antitrust from competi- competition in markets to con- the consumer welfare standard which is a big deal. And, and it's sort of also a little wonky um, to, to talk about it. But, um, you know, the, the historic understanding of what antitrust is, is ensuring that there's competitions in markets and that just, and a few players don't control entire industries. Um, what, what Reaganism did is it created the consumer welfare standard, which says, it, it, monopolies are okay. If consume, if it's good for consumers. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what happened was it'll that now monopolies exist. And when they go to go to merge, they can just go to the government and say, Hey, this is good for consumers. It's yeah. going to make a consumer price go down. They can have somebody write a study, pay somebody to write a study that says consumer prices are, are not going to go up or it's going to be good for consumers. But the reality is, it's not good for consumers and it's not good for workers and it's not good for producers. Um, so one thing that we really one, one policy that is a major policy at the federal level that we're fighting for and that we have to fight for, and there are bills out there to address this are changing our definition of antitrust and control in markets from back from the consumer welfare standard to what it what it, antitrust is supposed to be, which is concentration in markets and um, you know ensuring that there's competition in market so that was a big change Um, there are you know elected representatives that know that that are you know offering bills to address that Um, and we're fighting like hell to make sure that not only in all industries but specifically within agriculture that um, the historic uh, understanding and definition of antitrust is both strengthened and enforced
0: and it's kind of an uphill battle, though, isn't it? Because you're really ah. dealing with, uh, you know, Citizens United, and which basically, in, in my mind anyway, says that uh, it's OK. Uh, money is free speech. And a big company can put as many lobbyists as they want into Washington, D.C. or, or Jefferson City, wherever your capital city is, and they can pay for uh, you know, the campaigns for people to campaign for office. So I, I would suspect that by the time people actually get into office, whether they're a representative or a senator or whatever, uh, some sort of legislative office, uh, there's not a big chance that they're actually going to advocate for you, because by that time, they're kind of already on the take, to to uh, put it lightly.
1: Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, Dan. Um, sometimes not. Um, you know, and it doesn't mean it's not worth fighting for. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, our our process has gone a little sideways. It maybe has always been a little sideways. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're gonna be fighting for, you know, real representative democracy after I'm gone. Um, But the work that we're doing here at MRCC and the work that you're doing um, in the media to, uh, you know, talk to people and listen to people about these issues is ideally creating uh, an even stronger foundation for future generations to to fight for democracy, to fight for uh, justice. Um, to fight for people, um, and you know, and that's what we're doing here at at MRCC, and I think that's what we're talking right now.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the things that I asked you about earlier, we 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 were talking about hogs, and and we wanted to talk about cattle as well. But one yeah. other thing, first before we get to that, we've talked about uh, about the grain farmers, and it got me to thinking about stewardship of the land. And this is uh, a, a, I'm, I am I'm, I'm a city boy, so I'm just kind of getting used to these terminologies, but. You, you have to uh, guard the land. You have to take care of the land. The land just doesn't keep giving and giving and giving. It has to be rejuvenated, and it can be rejuvenated artificially through, I suppose, fertilizers and things like that. But even then, I would suspect it wears out after a while. So um, so farmers, in, 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 as far as I can tell, it makes logic sense that farmers would be very tuned in to things like global warming, uh, you know, the climate change, whatever you want to call it. it and, uh, it, from the perspective of that's their living right there. So what sort of environmental awareness do you see among the rural community insofar as, you know, stewardship of the land and, and to a larger extent, um, the, uh, the, the, um, global warming and, and other eco- ecological disasters?
1: Yeah. Um, the best stewards of the land are farmers living on that land. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's that's in our opinion one of the mo- most important things we're fighting for right now farmers that live there that know that land that know the water that know the run that know everything about that land they care about that land and they care about their livestock and they care about you know the, the things that they grow um now now the policies don't always um prop up those same values mm-hmm. um so you know uh, Earl butts the Secretary of Agriculture, back in the day, said, "Get big or get out." Fence row to fence row, planting of of commodities, um, you know, and, and that this gets back to, you know, uh, intentional uh, policies of of overproduction driving price down, um, so that the the integrators and the um, the processors can get cheap inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, it also uh, plays into our our quote unquote free trade agreements. Um, that have not only um, hamstrung and negatively impacted family farmers in our country, but are uh, negatively impacting family farmers in in countries around our world. Um, You know, and and environmental protection and specifically water protection is uh, on the forefront of of our members' um, brains um, when we talk about this. But uh, first and foremost, uh the thing that that they're worried about is is passing the farm on down to the next generation. Yeah. Um you know, in order for for people to to uh, really take those steps to uh mitigate uh climate change and 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 to to have environmental protection, we have to ensure that that farmers are paid a living wage. Um yeah. you know that that they're comfortable out there and they can run their operations relative to um the things that they know yeah. uh how to protect their operations. Uh the policies uh, say otherwise and the policies, uh, push production in a different direction. Um, and, you know, and now they're asking us to, you know, these same corporations are asking taxpayers, um, to pay, to clean up, um, their, their, uh, climate disaster that they've created, um, through, you know, for, for example, biogas and anaerobic manure digesters for CAFOs. Um, and, you know, I've, I've lots and lots of times because it's true. Uh, the industrialization and the corporate takeover of of the livestock industry and of our protein markets and our agriculture markets in general um, has been hugely fueled by taxpayer dollars by our own money um, to benefit them at our expense um at the expense of not only you know our families um our communities our economies our states our country but even at the expense of our climate and the future livability of this world um so these are really big issues we're dealing with right now Mm -hmm. um but we see how but we know how they're all connected and and you know we're a rural organization we go out and our first job is to listen and then discuss these issues and uh like i said you know when we talk about these issues in rural missouri um the vast majority of people out here are shaking their head yes because it's the truth and they you know and they see the truth and they agree with the truth and you know this the political division that's being created through the corporate narrative to to get us to fight with each other about issues, a lot of issues that, you know, aren't on the forefront of our brains, but they're putting on the forefront of our brains yeah. so that we can be divided so they can keep doing what they're doing, keep the status quo, keep running the system, um, you know, at the expense of all us. And and here at MRCC, our job is to listen first and then bring people together and show our commonalities, which are much, much more than our um you know, our differences and, uh, you know, coming together and, and organizing and fighting for what we know is truth and, and right.
0: Good. I like that. Well put. And, and we did want to hit, I wanted to circle back uh, on cattle operations too, because we talked a lot about hog operations before and that it seems like it's pretty far gone at this point. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying it's hopeless or anything like that, but it does seem like industrial uh, forces have been quite successful at taking over that market. What's happening with the cattle operations in this country, and spe- specifically in Missouri?
1: You know, um, we're Missouri's got 50,000 cattle producers. We're second only to Texas um, in number of cattle operations. They're they're huge, hugely important to our food system, our economies, um, our communities. Um, what we're seeing right now, and I think what most people are seeing right now, is you know, huge increases in inflation um, at the grocery store, uh, seeing beef prices um, skyrocket, um, but then our members not getting paid really any more money, especially relative to the input costs that are going into to raising livestock. Um, it's it's a different sort of figurative animal. It mm-hmm. also is a very different literal animal. Um, but the thing that you know that we're trying to curb and trying to create policies to stop is the fact that some kids aren't coming back to the farm. And, you know, there's this narrative out there um, that, you know, kids just don't want to come back to the farm and that's not what we see. And that, you know, that's not what we hear. What we do hear is that, um, you know, farmers are telling their kids, maybe they shouldn't come back to the farm Mm. um, because there's not really any money in it. And, you know, just barely getting by and having to have an off-farm job in order to, you know, create more income on the farm and get health insurance um, is not, you know, is not the right way. It's, it's not the way it's supposed to be, in our opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, instead, we need to create policies that ensure that farmers get paid and consumers pay a good price, as opposed to the policies we have right now, which is farmers not getting paid, consumers paying historically high prices, and the the meat packers and the integrators in the middle oftentimes multinational corporations are making record profits um that's not what capitalism's supposed to be about that's monopolization that's uh, that's oligarchy that's just a few corporations controlling marketplaces so we we really need to fight at the federal level uh, specifically in 2023 during the farm bill debate um, to get a livestock title um, in the farm bill to uh, strengthen the department of justice and the Grain Inspection Packers and Stockyards Administration, which is the antitrust administration within USDA, um, to be able to not only have the rules um, and, and have the ability um, to enforce antitrust laws and to, to ensure competition is in markets, um, but then also have a, then also work on other policies that are uber important, like our taxpayer dollars should be going to supporting farmers, not multinational and foreign corporations. Yeah. Um, you know, issues like that. And there's bills out there from both sides of the aisle that are meant to address that. Um, but just like in Jeff City, it, the DC is the same. It's, um, it's sort of an old boys club. Yeah. And um, and that's not what democracy is supposed to be about. That actually democracy is was supposed to fight the old boys club. Um, so, you know, we're working on the policies that have been introduced, but then also working on ensuring that the uh, our elected representatives hear our voices loud and clear relative to us needing a a new farm bill, a new type of farm bill, not a status quo farm bill. Because the reason why President Biden passed an executive order in 2021 to try to, you know, address concentration and corporate control of markets, the reason why we had congressional hearings on Capitol Hill to talk about what's, what's happening, what's wrong with the beef market and the cattle market right now, um, the reason we have bills that are introduced to 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 strengthen antitrust, um, you know, and there's a multitude of them, is because of bad policy, and a lot of that bad policy comes out of of bad farm bills. Um, So, you know, and and we we maybe shouldn't get into the to the specific parts of the farm bills, but there's a lot of them that we need that we know of and that we need to have changed, Um, and we're going to be we're going to be fighting hard to make sure that that our elected representatives hear us loud and clear. And here are members loud and clear.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's policies and it's also the representatives, too. And and you, you mentioned that, you know, Jefferson City, which is the capital of Missouri right here, the old boys network, uh, you know, we just had an election and a lot of these guys got put back into, uh, into office. And I'm not going to, you know, make hay about, uh, you know, one person or another, but it does seems like the people who are making these, um, ill-informed or bad policy decisions, uh, keep getting back in. And that's, it's frustrating for me because I, I, I've been, I've been watching this for several years now and it's, um, I I don't, I don't know how, I, I guess I don't have an answer to this. I mean, policies are one thing we can write policies, but we can't get it passed, uh, can't get it voted upon if there are not people, representatives willing to, uh, to go with it. I mean, do you guys get down to the point of actually supporting individual candidates or what do you do to, to help out the candidates that you believe will be helping you?
1: No, we're a 501 C three. So we can't, um, engage in, in, in election politics like that. And and I'm glad we can't, Mm -hmm. um, because we want to be able to, to talk about the issues and talk about the policies. Um, you know, I, I'll just say that, you know, it's a systemic thing. Um, and, you know, it's it's easy to point to this person or point to that person um, and say they're right and they're wrong. Um, but the reality is it's a, it's a systemic thing. It's sort of an illusion of choice. Um, and, you know, we need to change how our democratic process works in general mm-hmm. um, so that it's not an illusion of choice anymore, so that the the voices of the vast majority of people out here are heard. Um, and, our, and you know, the the first thing that we do at MRCC and the first thing that our elected representatives should do is actually listen to the people. Um, and unfortunately, our system doesn't always um, isn't always set up for um, listening. It's more set up for telling. Yeah. We hear yeah. that a lot when we, um, you know, see campaign ads and hear the news and, you know, the 24 hour news cycle. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, we we just need a a different sort of system, and that system is democracy, and uh, it involves all of us.
0: Yeah, I see a lack of town halls also. I mean, those are situations where people who want to represent others, whether they're rural or they're urban or somewhere in between, you got to get out there and, and, you know, press the flesh, as they say, and, and talk to the people and mingle for a little while to find out what's really going on and i see less and less of that of that these days and maybe i'm just getting old or something but it just seems like i see a lot less of that these days a lot less interest in actually finding out what the people want uh and i agree with you it it, it tends to be more like telling the people what they want rather than rather than asking them what they want yeah. Uh, We do have to wrap this up pretty soon, though, but uh, just a couple of final questions right here. Is there something similar to the Missouri Rural Crisis Center that is operating in other states throughout the uh, heartland?
1: You know, uh, we're unique. Um, Mm. We're unique not only because of what we've been talking about here, but we also run um, something called Patchwork Family Farms, um, which is local pork. um, And I'll just give you a quick description of what that is in the early 90s, um, 1993 to be specific. Our members who raised hogs um, saw the writing on the wall, what was happening. Mm-hmm. They saw that in, in industrialization and concentration and corporate control and the, the influx of factory farms and our government policies supporting corporate control um, was happening. And uh, what we did in, in response, um, on top of our organizing for policies to try to stop it, um, was we started Patchwork Family Farms, which is a program of the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, we buy hogs off of independent producers. We buy them on the hoof, um, I.e. we buy them alive. And then we bring them into small packing plants, um, processors, and then we distribute local pork um, here in mid-Missouri. And then a little bit um, in the St. Louis area mm-hmm. um, that makes us especially unique. So our, our, you know, we're, we're walking the walk as we talk the talk. Yeah. Um, but there are groups in, in, in other States that that organize family farmers um, and we work with them now Missouri is different than I was different than Minnesota, you know, um, and I particularly like Missouri, I'm born and bred. Mm-hmm. Um, but Me too. <laughs> um, no, yeah, yeah, there are other um, there are other uh, both state based, but also regional and national mm-hmm. organizations that that represent independent family farmers and the ones that are fighting for the good things we're in touch with and um, we're working with.
0: Oh, good, good. Like to hear that because there's only so much you can do in Missouri. Here, you can maybe have influence over Missouri, but uh, you, this is kind of a nationwide thing, really. Um,
1: yeah, no, it's a global thing too. I mean, we there's yeah, a lot of yeah. things we, did, we didn't talk about on this on this call on this podcast. We could talk. The thing is, we could talk for hours, Dan, and not really cover the same issue <laughs> yeah. issues. Um, but free trade is um, and corporate written free trade the globalization of price allowing multinational commodity traders to go around the world and buy things and then sell things and undercut farmers um, and charge consumers more um, all around the world um, is an issue so not only are domestic policies things that we need to work on and our elected representatives need to need to work on and and listen and address but also our international policies um, like our free trade agreements like you know, the the NAFTAs of the world and the CAFTAs of the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. seems like there should be like tariffs or something like that, because I can see where some countries have uh, a source of cheap labor. And so, you know, they they would try to undercut us. I mean, this happens all the time in other industries as well. And I always thought that there should be some willingness on our part, uh, the U.S.'s part, that is, to uh, try to equalize the playing field, not only to, Uh, keep ourselves in business and keep ourselves prosperous, but also to uh, send a message to other countries as well. Like, you know, you guys can't, uh, you you start abusing your your own people. It's not going to pay. You know, you still have to be competitive uh, at our level rather than, you know, trying to take advantage of other people.
1: Well, you're right. And you can hear me messing with papers right now, because I've got it sitting here. But just relative to, and I don't, I mean, I guess I'm being recorded. I was going to say, don't quote me on this. Um, the, um, the we import huge amounts of beef in this country. We import billions of pounds of boxed beef and millions of cattle on the hoof. And what that, and then what, what the packers are allowed to do relative to the boxed beef and the cattle on the hoof is, is then repackage it and put it as, Label it as product of the United States, oh, which wow. is fooling consumers into thinking they're buying, you know, beef that comes from our country, but also undercutting producers in our country, um, driving down the price of beef. Oh, um, so it's it's amazing and it's not right. Yeah, and that, those are some policies that we're working on too.
0: That's something that everybody needs to know about. You're telling me this, and I'm just finding out right now that this is the case. I mean, you, I go to the store. And, you know, buy a pound of beef thinking, OK, I'm, I'm supporting the American farmers. But really, that beef could be coming from, you know, who knows, Brazil or China or something like that.
1: Brazil, uh, Nicaragua, Mexico, Canada, um, all over the world. Um, and you can find those. I mean, people can look it up. It's on uh, on a USDA's website. Um, ERS, I think the Economic Research Service is mm-hmm. the one that has them in spreadsheets. And you can see um, how much how much we're importing. And um, and it's it's amazing, and yeah. people don't know it. Why does the you That's t- why we. That's why we fight for mandatory country boards and labeling. Um, we think that all meat need, needs to be labeled where it comes from.
0: Yeah, I, I, it just I'm shocked. <laughs> I, I'm looking at this and thinking I'm, I re- I wrote down the letters USDA, and I'm thinking to myself, well, they should be you know telling us this stuff. Um, But I guess they aren't, or at least if they are, it's in the fine print somewhere. Guys like me never see it, so
1: yeah, you got to look for it. And um, but it, you know, it is there. And doing the research is important. And if if anybody has any questions about, you know, what we're talking about right now, I I would not hesitate to say, give me a call and um, or send me an email because that's what we're here for. And um, you know, just sort of in closing, we are a membership organization or a nonprofit. Um, It's the end of year. Um, You know, whoever out there wants to join in this fight, please look up Missouri Rural Crisis Center. Um, Join Missouri Rural Crisis Center. And my name's Tim. Uh, Let me know if you ever need anything. That's what we're here for.
0: Great, because I was just about to go to this portion we call the call to action, where you get to put Ah. out all that information. So you beat me to the punch. Um, You can find the website at uh, morural.org, morural.org. So uh, go there and find out more information.
1: Yeah, and you can also sign our petition calling on President Biden to enforce antitrust laws and um, fight for competition in our food and agriculture markets. And that's going to go up on our website, I think, today, um, if not this weekend. So sign that petition, join MRCC, um, and join in this fight for not only a democratically controlled food system for farmers and consumers and a clean environment and and a healthy climate, um, but also in our fight for democracy.
0: Great. Thank you, Tim. We've been talking with Tim Gibbons, the communication director for the Missouri Rural Crisis Center. Tim, thank you very much for joining us on Democracy on the Move today.
1: Hey, Dan, I appreciate you and I appreciate all your listeners.
0: You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our March toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, well, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you'll tune in again next week.